This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Women in Crime. We are really excited to bring you this new podcast about all things related to women in the criminal justice system. Our voices might sound familiar to those of you who listen to Direct Appeal, story about famous suitcase murderer Melanie McGuire, who was convicted for the murder and dismemberment of her husband and who is currently serving a life sentence. For those of you who don't know us, my name is Megan Sachs, and I am a criminologist, and I have been for the last 10 years. I write and research on topics including bail reform, sex offender policies, and women in crime. And this is my co-host, Amy Schlossberg. Hello, I am Amy Schlossberg, and I am also a criminologist. However, my focus is different. Uh, my focus is on the causes and remedies of wrongful conviction and offender re-entry and reintegration. Happy to be back, Megan. So excited to be here and really excited to bring you this new podcast. This is episode one, The Betty Broderick Story. You ever heard of Betty Broderick, Amy? You know, the name sounds familiar, but I can't place it, to be honest. So Okay. Well, like I said, I first heard about this case when I was younger. Actually, I was watching the news with my mother when I was probably 11 or 12 and should not have been watching this type of information. And I saw this case about a woman who had murdered her ex-husband and his wife. And then right after, I remember my mother was watching the movie that came out, The Betty Broderick Story. And this was with Meredith Baxter Burney. And I remember the movie was really shocking and she was really good. And we were both sort of hooked into it. What can I say? So let's talk about who Betty Broderick is. Well, her name is actually Elizabeth Broderick. She grew up in New York and attended an all-girls college. And that was right around uh, Eastchester, New York. And she met her husband, Dan Broderick, at a Notre Dame game in 1965. So Dan was in college there and Betty was attending a game. There was a difference in age between the two of them. So Betty was a couple of years younger. I think she was just about to go to college. And Dan was a couple of years in. And Betty described Dan as being kind of this geeky type. Uh, He had talked about how he was going to go to medical school right after. And Betty was quite beautiful. She was a young sort of socialite from a you know good family, good area. Uh, she recalled that she was going back. You know, she she was excited to start college at the time. And but Dan actually you know got her number and he wooed her. He really pursued her. And she said that he was persistent. And his persistence over a couple of years wound up paying off. So they eventually married. A few years later, I think it was 1969 when they married, and they had their first child in 1970. Well, Betty would go on to actually support Dan and a burgeoning family, I guess you would say, while Dan went to medical school and he went to Cornell Medical School. And Betty, with her education, I believe her degree was in early education, became a teacher. So Dan goes on to medical school, which is rough. You know, they have a small child and I believe they had a second one not too far after. And he finishes medical school. And you probably think, well, that's a great moment, right? Like, all right, medical school is done. He's going to go on to become a doctor. Well, that's not what happened here. 
Dan announced after he finished medical school that, in fact, he did not want to practice medicine and that he intended to go right on to law school. And Betty supported this decision. And he actually went to Harvard Law School. So Were they well off? They weren't, no. Uh, I actually remember Betty describing their first... I think one of their first um, beds for the the daughter was not, you know, uh, it was like a drawer, (laughs) you know, blankets in a drawer of a dresser. So, Uh no, they were not well off at all. Uh, But she stood by him. And I mean, he did go to Harvard Law School. So there you go. Smart guy. Yeah. Super smart guy. Mm So he went to uh, law school and he finished and he went on to combine these two. So medical school and law school, his background to become a successful uh, medical malpractice attorney Mm. in San Diego, in La Jolla. Basically through most of the 1970s, Betty's working, Dan is, he's going to school. And finally, you know, he got this job and I think it was by like the early 1980s, maybe 1980, 1981, after a lot of years of struggling and hard work. The Brodericks kind of arrive on the scene. So they become this socialite family in La Jolla. They have four children at the time. And as Betty would say, quite frankly, they they were doing well. They had money now. They had houses. They belonged to the country club. They were taking ski trips. She said we could finally breathe. This was it. All of the hard work had paid off, you know, for 10 years. And this was, they were still young. I think they, they, you know, they were still in their 30s. So life is looking good for them. But then Betty describes uh, that there would be a change in in Dan's behavior at some point as he becomes more successful. And he really was a successful attorney, described that way um, by almost everyone who knew him. He was earning something, I think, like maybe about a million dollars a year. uh, And this is in 1980. Mm -hmm. So he's doing well. She says he goes, she noticed that he started to go through like a midlife crisis. And what's the first sign? Do you know Buying the, a car. <laughs> and what do you buy when you have a midlife crisis? Does anyone know? A sports car of some yeah. sort? I don't know. What yeah, so it? he came home with a red Corvette. Oh. <laughs> and so she, cliche. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he came home with a red Corvette, and she said that she recalled um, buying a book that was like how to survive a midlife crisis. And she said that she did things like try to make herself better, so improve herself, you know, um, whether it was, I can't remember, she said cosmetic surgery, but she lost weight, and she was... She was already thin. She Mm -hmm. was an attractive woman. But, you know, she thought, okay, well, if he's going through something, I'm going to work on this too. But then something happened uh, that would surprise Betty a lot because she said that she never knew Dan to be interested in other women. And she said they had an office party and it was his office party and she was invited. And she said at this party, uh, it was the first time where she would be introduced to Linda Kolkina and Linda Kolkina would eventually go on to become an integral part of this case. But she was a very young, new office assistant. I believe Linda was 21 or 22 at the time. Very, very attractive. Mm -hmm. And Betty said this was the first time she had ever heard Dan say to another person, wow, look at how pretty this woman is. And she said it was kind of like a jolt. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, up until that time, Dan never talked about other women in that way. So this was her first... um, inkling that something was wrong. But she also said she didn't think that it was a big deal, right? Like she's not going to see Linda very often. She's just some office. She's a temp. I think she was a temp at the time. So she didn't really think that this was going to be such a big deal. But Linda would go on to become a regular office assistant and Dan would hire her pretty quickly as his personal assistant. And mind you, (laughs) personal assistant. (laughs) Well, his his personal assistant. Mind you, Linda 
I don't think, and every report I, I read, <clears throat> she she couldn't type. She was not necessarily the assistant you would think someone would want mm. for, you know, a thriving sort of career. I don't know much more about her professional skills, uh, but Dan hired her. She became his full-time personal assistant. How do you say that? Would that be personal? No, it's not his personal assistant. It's his professional assistant. Yeah. Well, she could be. Clearly, she was both, it sounds like. You're getting, <laughs> it sounds like that's what you're getting at, but... Oh, administrative assistant? Yeah, I'm trying to think what the right way to say that would be, but I think it was his, you know, his assistant. Anyway, mm-hmm. his legal assistant on his team. Mm-hmm. And it became obvious to people in the office that they were spending a significant amount of time together. And Betty became suspicious that they were having an affair and they were still married. Linda and Dan were taking longer lunches together. And what happened was there was sort of a big event that culminated. This was, I believe, Dan's 39th birthday. Betty had come to the office to visit him. She came with balloons, champagne, you know, the whole nine yards. And Linda and Dan were both gone. And it looked like there had already been a party in Dan's office, like champagne bottles as well, (laughs) cake. You know, it was obvious that there was a celebration. One of the other secretaries was left to say, sorry, Mrs. Broderick, but Dan and Linda have left for the day. Now, I think Dan might have later claimed that they were at a deposition or mm-hmm. something. Is that what they're calling it these days? <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, I read a bunch of, you know, I've read a bunch on this case anyway, because I, I was so interested in it. But, you know, there's mixed reports on whether or not there's confirmation about the affair. But I think there was a good amount of evidence that they were certainly engaged in an affair. And you'll, you'll actually appreciate this, though. So... When Betty left, she went home. And when Dan got home, apparently all of his clothes were sitting in a pile on the lawn. Good for her. And, well, she set them on fire. (laughs) I say the reason you might appreciate this is because I often hear you say, liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) So this was a nod to liar, liar, pants on fire. Oh, God. So what had happened, I mean, you know, Dan kept telling Betty, you know, nothing's happening. You're, You're crazy. You know, you're imagining this. However, you know, I should also mention that right now what you're getting is a picture of Betty as this, you know, perfect wife. Mm -hmm. And some people have described her that way. But her kids would later go on to say that, and they had four of them, um, some of them would go on to say that the relationship was not so rosy between the two of them. And what they actually described in, in court depositions later on or court testimony later on was that their mother had a lot of outbursts and that she could be very, she had a very bad temper. Do you know how old the kids were about while this was going on? We're talking like infants or No, they weren't actually. I mean, she had to, I think the boys were younger. So I'm, you know, maybe they were eight, nine, ten. They weren't grown, but they weren't infants. No, the girls were older, certainly. One of the girls was, I believe, 17. Maybe the other was 14. Okay. They're definitely older Mm -hmm. at this time. So there was definitely information that came from them that said that Betty was not always, she had a temper. And they said she could be violent. They said she threw things. She threw things at their father. They said that often Betty would threaten divorce, say she was leaving. Um, So they described it as a tumultuous relationship Mm -hmm. for sure, which is certainly not an excuse for cheating, but it wasn't so rosy, okay? So eventually what happens is, yes, Dan says that he wants a divorce. And I think this happened in 1985, So Dan files for divorce. And of course, Betty does not want a divorce. This is not in her plans. But didn't she light his clothes on fire? And it sounds like she was 
she's just trying to make a point, but she wanted to stay. Oh no, she. I think she believed he was okay. having an affair, but she wanted to save her marriage. Oh, she thought this. She thought it was a fling. She thought that he was going to have a little thing, have a little midlife crisis, have a car, have a girl, maybe for a second, even though she wasn't happy about it. But she didn't think this was going to lead to a, a forever breakup. Okay. But Dan Broderick had other ideas. When Dan met Linda, it was, I think, for him, you know, he mm -hmm. fell in love. That mm -hmm. was it. And he intended to be with Linda. So he filed for divorce in 1985. And this divorce would make headlines like no other. It was almost a five-year divorce. Dan Broderick at the time, I believe, was the president of the San Diego Bar Association. Mm -hmm. So he was very well respected in all the legal circles. Betty said that it made it very difficult for her to get a lawyer or one that she felt was competent. She went through a number of lawyers before she would settle on one. But even then, she elected at some point to represent herself. During the time they were getting divorced, though, Betty did a lot of things that were outside the bounds of the law. So Dan and Betty took up separate residences. And who had custody of the kids? Oh, so this becomes oh, interesting. Sorry. So Betty would naturally have had custody. And I think Dan might have been comfortable with that. He, they moved somewhere close. You know, they were going to stay both in. Mm -hmm. I guess Dan's plan was always to be near his kids. And the kids were mostly with Betty. But she systematically during this time began dropping her kids off on his doorstep. <laughs> like, okay. now you take them. She said she dropped them off one by one in hopes that he would, A, see how hard it was to raise children, and B, see how terrible it was to tear their family apart. Hmm. And she also thought that he would, I think she really thought that he's going to find this so difficult and be like, wow, I had no clue how much she did. Mm. And so he would either want to give them back or work it out. But that didn't happen. Dan mm. actually said, fine, they'll come live with me. And so the kids wound up uh, staying with Dan for quite some time. But mm. during this time, they would go back and forth. And the two younger sons, I think, would eventually gravitate more towards spending time at Betty's house. But Betty broke into Dan's house a number of times. So she breaks in. In one famous event, she broke into his house and trashed it. She threw bottles everywhere. <laughs> she knocked over furniture. She, she sprayed graffiti all over the walls. Oh, my God. I mean, she really trashed the place. Mm -hmm. and That's not legal either, as far as I know. No. I mean, she she really went, I mean, she was mad. I'm assuming he didn't press charges. That probably wasn't worth oh, it Oh, Dan for pressed charges oh, all the time. Oh, he did? Okay. Oh, this became like a, a thing back and forth. No, mm -hmm. he, he Did he have a charges. restraining order at any point? He sure did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She wasn't supposed to go over to his house. She broke in another time, and apparently um, Linda had made him- Linda was living with him at the time. Linda was not living okay. with him right away. But she broke in another time and Linda had obviously made him, I guess his favorite, one of the things he loved was like a Boston cream pie. So there was mm. one in his house and she took it and smeared it all over the bed and the walls. What a waste of a good pie. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I was thinking the same thing as I was talking about, I was hungry too as we were talking about it. So she had broken into his residence. Another time she threw wine bottles through his... Um, Again, what a waste of wine. I think they were empty bottles. Okay. Yeah, just to make you feel better. I think they were empty um. bottles. So she has, uh, she is getting, she's getting increasingly violent and she's got a history now of breaking into his home, trashing it. She's also calling and leaving terrible messages on the machine. So she's leaving like, I mean, she's cursing and she's saying things like, you know, how are you and the whore doing? Is she harassing Linda as well? Do you know? Or so when Linda moved in. That's okay. when she started to harass them both. And I don't know how long it was until Linda moved in. I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. But, at, you know, at first she left messages for Dan, but then it became Dan and Linda. She would say these things though, also, and her kids would hear the messages. And one of her sons, I mean, one of her sons, you know, asked her to please stop saying horrible things. It mm. was uh, embarrassing. 
Dan got a restraining order against her, he began to fine her as well for the obscene messages. So I think that every time she left a bad message, like a lewd message where she cursed, he would deduct like $100 off of the allowance. Oh, jeez. The judge eventually ordered him to pay all of that money back. But for some time, he he wasn't finding a way to enforce. You know, the restraining mm-hmm. order's not working. Betty became, I will tell you this, so she became, I mean, the pinnacle of violence was probably she became so enraged with a round of like legal papers that he served her that she drove her car, her truck, her SUV maybe it was, through the door, the front door of his house. Oh my God. Yeah, this was, I mean, this was violent. And Dan had her arrested. I believe Dan had her committed to a mental institution or a psychiatric facility for a short time at one point. Now- her version of the story is that Dan was making her crazy. He was making her nuts. He was trying to make it seem crazy so that he would do better in divorce court. He antagonized her. He and Linda were antagonizing her. She said that she would get letters or pictures of uh, Dan and Linda together and that she would also get anti-wrinkle cream and weight loss products in the mail. <laughs> so you th- was this Linda harassing her back? Well, this is what Betty was saying. She said clearly- Was that corroborated were- or is that just based on her words? Like, I'm wondering if that's just her lying. I think that was just Betty's word. Yeah. Um, Although she may have told a friend at the time. She still had friends at Mm -hmm. the time, too. So, you know, remember, they're both still residing in La Jolla. And, you know, she claimed that Dan used the courts to further abuse her. There was a legal loophole he had used to sell their house. So they had a joint house. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to sell it. And she didn't want to. Or... She, she wanted a certain price. And so he used some, t- I don't know what the loophole was, but he was able to actually sell the house without her permission. Hmm. Now, some people might have said, like, that's crazy. I can't believe, you know, he was able to do that and whatnot. However, uh, she was, they received a couple of offers on the house, which, to which she said no. And he just said, I'm never going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. She's never going to say yes. So a lot of this also becomes whose perspective mm-hmm. are you going to believe? Okay. So they go back and forth. They get a, There's a final settlement. Dan gets custody of the children. In the final settlement, Betty got almost nothing in terms of like a lump sum financial settlement. And because Dan actually used a California law that allowed the earning spouse to split debt incurred after separation on, I think, community properties. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it came out at the end. The judge said something like splitting it up would mean that Betty would actually owe Dan money. I think mm. she got something like $30,000, which mm. seems enraged a little... Enraged her, I'm assuming. I'm sure that enraged her. But she did get a house in La Jolla worth about, I think, I saw a couple different reports. So estimates were between six hundred and fifty dollars and $750,000. Mm-hmm. And she also got alimony. Remember, not child support because he had the children. Mm-hmm. She got alimony in the amount of $16,000 a month. So we're talking about almost $200,000 a year, mm-hmm. and a house in La Jolla. And some people might say that's actually more than fair, also considering that Betty was young and she could still work. Yeah. I mean, this is not someone who was not capable of going out and finding a job mm-hmm. at this point, even though she hadn't, and she sacrificed a lot. But she was obviously furious over it. Also, because the divorce was finalized, it meant that Dan and Linda were free to get married. Mm-hmm. So Dan and Linda got married pretty quickly after in April 1989, Dan got security for the wedding because Betty had threatened to kill him. And it turns out that a couple of his friends and security advisors wanted Dan to wear a bulletproof vest. 
It was that bad. It was that bad. Wow. So did Betty have firearms or was it? Betty did have a firearm. And they knew that obviously. Okay. I don't know if they knew that she had a firearm. It was just revealed later on in in the reports Mm -hmm. that she got a firearm right around the time Dan and Linda got married. Okay. So he refused though. He said, I got security. I'm not wearing, I'm not going to be held hostage by Mm -hmm. my ex-wife. And then he also said reportedly that, you know, if she kills me, it's like killing the golden goose. Because he was still supporting her financially. Yeah. So still paying that $16,000 a month. Herself. That's essentially what he was saying. Um, so, okay, they get married in November 1989. Betty and Dan have been divorced, but they still have legal battles because they're still going back and forth. Apparently, Betty is still leaving these obscene messages on in their machine calling Dan awful names and Linda always the bimbo, the whore. How's your whore? <laughs> And it kind of went on and on, and, and Dan filed more restraining orders against her. And I guess she had just gotten served with another round of legal documents, legal papers, and this was right before her 42nd birthday. And one night in November 1989, again, right before her birthday, she took her daughter's key, and she went over to Dan and Linda's home. And she unlocked the door, went in. This is in the early morning hours, I believe between 4 and 5 a.m., She went up to their room while they were sleeping and she shot at them. She shot the couple. She first shot, she first hit Linda with two bullets and they killed her pretty instantly. The bullets killed her pretty instantly. But after she shot Dan, he was still alive and he actually crawled down from the bed to the floor and he was trying to take cover and reach for the phone. And he apparently said to her, okay, okay, you got me, you got me. And she went over and ripped the phone out of the wall so that he couldn't, you know, pick Mm -hmm. up the phone and call the cops. She took the phone and she left and she called her daughter. Did she kill him? He died. He died as well. No, Dan and Linda both died. uh, Linda would die uh, instantly. So no pain. Dan, unfortunately, his lung would bleed out. So it would be slower. So it was. Were any of the children home at the time? No, none of the children were in the house at the time. Um, and so Betty called one of her children afterwards she called the daughter, uh, one of the daughters and one of her daughters came and basically got her. Um, and, uh, sorry, before we get there, she called a daughter, but Betty also had, I might add, Betty had a boyfriend at the time. Yeah. Betty's got a boyfriend who had been reportedly living with her for quite some time. They had been dating for a couple of years. Interesting. It's kind of an interesting development because you think that she's the the woman scorned and upset, but yet she's also having a relationship. So she had called her daughter and daughter also, or she called her boyfriend also. What happened was that her boyfriend and one of the neighbors went over to Dan and Linda's because Betty said to the daughter or to one of them, I've killed him. I've killed Dan and Linda. Oh, she made an initial confession. She made a confession right away. Interesting. She called them and said, I've killed him. I killed the son of a bitch, something of that nature. And they were just not sure, like, is this Betty talking, you know, Mm -hmm. or did she really do this? So they went over to the house and they found them really quickly, called the cops And Betty would actually turn herself in later that day um, with her daughter, and she never denied committing the murders, ever. The community was shocked, too, of course. They're shocked about this happening in, you know, this prestigious neighborhood. On the one hand, you have a a vicious murder, um, but on the other hand, you also have people who hunkered down in Betty's camp pretty quickly. 
Oh, yeah. She's the loyal wife who was dumped after making her husband a success and replaced by the younger version of her. That doesn't give you the right to kill your husband, your ex-husband, though. Like, yes, she was wrong. But why would anyone side with someone who murdered two people in cold blood? A lot of women, women who were wow. sick of husbands, you know, they were sick of being the the second, you know, what's that? The first wives club. Yeah. Um, they were sick of being dumped by the husband who made his success off their backs. Some women thought also they believed Betty's claims that she was really the tortured one, that he mentally, verbally abused her and that she, Betty said, he, dro- he and Linda drove me to this. She said if they would have ever treated me decently, fairly, if they didn't stomp all over me, if they didn't use and abuse me, this would have been a different outcome. Doesn't give you the right to kill. Like It's not like she's even trying to claim self-defense. She's just claiming like these people weren't nice to me. You can't just kill people who aren't nice to you. Oh, well, she would <laughs> claim self-defense. No. Okay. So <laughs> she was clearly charged with murder and she went to trial. And the defense that she used in the first trial was the battered wife syndrome defense. Uh, Interesting. Yes. um, She had a good lawyer who, uh, you know, sort of showed uh, systematically that she was this great loyal wife who had been walked on, trampled on. And the outcome was that she was driven to the edge by being battered. I was going to say, not do you physically wanna, battered. Yeah. Do you want to tell the listeners how battered wife syndrome is different from self defense, or if you'd like me to? So, self defense requires that you have to feel like your life is in immediate danger, right? That's one of the criteria for claiming self defense. However, battered wife syndrome, battered woman syndrome, some states have adopted this to get rid of that criteria, whereby you can claim that your life was not in immediate danger. However, your actions were the result of repeated abuse. So the impetus for this really were people that were abused for years and then they may have shot their attacker while they're sleeping. And they claim that this was the only time I felt like I could do it without fearing for my life. So that makes sense to me. This makes no sense to me as to why they would even... The the idea is that she has other options, right? Self-defense is when you have no other option. You feel like your life is in danger. She said it was either them or me. This is yeah. this is the defense that she's using. I was actually uh, I was actually looking at you, thinking I can't wait to see what Amy's reaction is going to be. This uh, and would it? What would a jury think about this? Right? Would they think she well, was a battered? I'm wo- curious what they thought. Well, um, you have also you have her lawyer arguing this is clearly a battered woman. Oh, I think he did something really smart too. Like in the beginning of trial, I think oh this I think there was something theatrical. Like he showed a picture of her when she was all dressed to the nines mm-hmm. and like she was this prestigious wife. And said something like, this is what, you know, she was and this is what she is now, like her mugshot. This is what they drove her to. So it was kind of a theatrical, dramatic, Mm -hmm. you know, beginning. And the prosecutor got up and said, batter woman syndrome. And she was a female. Give me a break. This Mm -hmm. woman lives in a, you know, gets (laughs) $16,000 a month and lives in. A beautiful house in Not La Jolla. Not the face of a battered woman. Nope. She said, I've dealt with plenty of battered, win- battered women. And Betty Broderick is not one of them. And so they went on to have a very famous trial. This was a trial also on court TV. Mm-hmm. And the outcome, well, can you guess what the outcome was, Amy? I'm going to hope they found her guilty. The outcome was a mistrial. What? They could not decide. That's there were so interesting. And there were more than one. There were maybe. What was the charge was first degree murder? First degree murder. And I guess they were very split as well on 
a number of them wanting something like manslaughter. Well, because first degree is premeditated and deliberate. Were they trying to claim that maybe it wasn't premeditated? It was more of like a crime of passion? Right. So this is really interesting. Betty actually took the stand in her own defense, Hmm. which is a big risk, as you know, Hmm. and as we've talked about in our past cases. And the prosecutor, you know, asks her to explain this. And Betty says, oh, I didn't go over there to kill them. And the prosecutor, um, whose name I believe was Carrie Wells, says, what do you mean? You went to them, their house, you snuck in with a key you stole from your daughter, and you brought a gun, and you shot them and killed them. And she said, I know, but I was just so flustered. I wish I heard these voices in my head. I just needed to either reason with them. So she said, I went over there because I was going to make them listen to me, or I was going to kill myself. And so the prosecutor says, okay, so why didn't you kill yourself? And she says, well, I ran out of bullets. Oh, come on. Okay. So, so please tell me they retried the case. Oh, yeah. There okay. was no way this case was okay. not going to be retried. They okay. retried the case. And the second trial, uh, I mean, a lot of the same players. You have the same lawyers. You have mm-hmm. the same case pretty much. Mm-hmm. And you have, I, I believe it was two of their children testified. And For the prosecution or... They were prosecution witnesses Mm -hmm. um, because they could speak to also, you know, she had confessed to them. Mm -hmm. She took one of the, the poor daughter took, you know, her key and one of the daughters, I guess, testified about how they were always supposed to guard the key with their life, you know. Mm -hmm. And so they were, I think they were maybe reluctant witnesses, but Mm -hmm. they were witnesses for the prosecution. And the second trial resulted in murder convictions, in second degree murder convictions. Really? And what yes, okay. the jury couldn't decide if it was really premeditated or if she just got, you know, enraged crazy and went over there. They couldn't decide how premeditated it was. And I think that was the same in the first one. I think bringing the gun, going in the middle of the night, getting a key. I mean, what more do you need for a premeditation? It looks premeditated to yeah. me. I'm not going to lie. I okay. see premeditation here. Mm-hmm. So Betty was convicted of second degree murder. I don't think she ever thought she would be convicted. Yeah. Uh, she received 15 years to life to be served consecutively. So oh, for each victim. For each victim. So that's pretty much 30 to life. 30 to life. She also received, I believe it was two additional years for the possession of a firearm. Okay. Um, so no possibility of parole until like... Well, uh, we'll get there. Okay. The difference between for listeners, do you know, um, they might not know consecutively versus concurrently. Mm-hmm. So consecutively means both sentences have to be served back to back. So 15 years and then another 15 years. Concurrently means uh, those sentences can be combined together. So mm-hmm. it could just be one 15 year term. So consecutively is worse. Mm-hmm. So Betty got essentially 32 years mm-hmm. to life. And so, okay, so Betty has also gotten parole hearings or she's had parole hearings. She's also done interviews. She did two interviews with Oprah. She's done a number of interviews from prison. And she was, let's see, her first parole hearing, I believe, was 2010. Mm-hmm. And they call her Angry Betty, by the way, during, uh, that was kind of the name they gave her afterward. The mm-hmm. press dubbed her that. And Betty was not remorseful at her parole hearing. And nor was she remorseful in the interviews that she gave if you watch them, the ones, you know, Oprah had asked her, and I think the parole board asked her, are you sorry for what you did? And she consistently said, I'm sorry for everything that happened. I'm sorry that they made me do this. I'm sorry that um, Linda and Dan, you know, forced me down this road. I'm sorry for my children. I'm sorry that we all had to suffer because of this situation. And so obviously, you know, a parole board, that's not yeah. going to fly for them. Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear that. Um, so, And this was 2010. So she'd been in prison, 
I'm going to say now, so the trial was 1991. I'm not sure exactly. Some fast math here. Come on. I'm fast mathing it. She had been in prison almost 20 years. Uh-huh. At this point, you would think that someone might be at least more re- remorseful for a show. I was just going to say, someone would have told her by now, hey, if you want parole, you got to at least fake remorse. I think she knew that. She didn't care. I think she couldn't. Okay. I think Betty really, really couldn't. Um, so she got denied parole. So she was denied parole in 2010. And so she became eligible again in 2017. And so she had her second parole hearing in 2017. Did she learn her lesson? Hard to say. She did show some remorse this time. She did say she was sorry. The parole board did not feel that it was genuine. Okay. Because it probably wasn't. (laughs) I'm sure it wasn't genuine. If I had a guess, I would say it wasn't. And by the way, she's serving her time at California Institute for Women in Chino. Mm -hmm. And so the parole board said, we don't think this woman's ever really going to be repentant. We don't really think she Mm -hmm. feels bad at all that she took these two lives. And her kids were actually, this is interesting because she's got four children. So, you know, people would say, what? What was their role, if any? Mm-hmm. Are they were they interested? Did they did they show up? Her kids are divided. So you know, not that I know them personally, mm-hmm. but from what I've read, they uh, two of them believe that she should be released, and one uh, the female, one of the daughters, testified at the parole hearing that should her mother be released, she could come live with her, mm-hmm. and two others feel that she is exactly where she should be. Okay. Apparently, the kids remain united. You know, it didn't it didn't destroy them necessarily. I tried to find out information about what happened to them after, and it looks mm-hmm. like they were moved around a bit. It looks like maybe a relative um, or a, an in-law of Dan's was mm-hmm. raising them, and then they went to friends. You know, the girls were a little bit older, mm-hmm. so I'm not exactly sure where they all wound up. So did she get parole in 2017? So she did not get parole. Okay. So at the age of 69, Betty Broderick was denied parole again. And I, I don't think she's eligible for, for parole okay. for a number of years. So we're talking about a 69-year-old woman who yeah. is going to be in prison, possibly okay. until she dies. Might be exactly where she should be, though. That might be the appropriate yeah. response. So. Interestingly, you know, everyone's looked at this case. You've had a lot of people who tried to diagnose her. You know, mm-hmm. you have psychologists, psychiatrists, everyone has kind of, mm-hmm. you know, input on this. And I, I read all of these diagnoses to see also where I fall. Yeah. I think that she was diagnosed by one psychiatrist as having borderline personality disorder. Oh, I was going to say narcissistic personality disorder. Yep. That she too? was also okay. diagnosed with narcissistic personality so she had intense mood swings mm-hmm. described by her children also. I mean, Dan's family said that, but they're Dan's family. So they're obviously going to, mm-hmm. you know, say things that would not be helpful to Betty. But um, she had seemingly impulsive behavior, angry outbursts. She fits a lot of the characteristics of a borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and say I think that one was probably right. She was also diagnosed as having narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So uh, based on, you know, her lack of empathy for others and placing herself above others, uh, you know, hard to accept criticism for one's behavior. You know, Betty consistently maintained that she was, she consistently maintained that she was a victim, Mm -hmm. but she didn't regard her children as the real victims. Mm -hmm. And she did a lot to place her children in the middle of this debacle at every time. She used her children. Mm -hmm. I mean, One of the kids described, so there was two accounts that I read. So one of the kids is describing how scared and upset she was when she saw her mother. You know, we laughed about it, but when she saw her mother setting like, uh, you know, her dad's stuff on fire in the front lawn. Yeah, that's traumatizing. She said that she was, she, I mean, she was really, really Mm -hmm. upset and disturbed about it. One of her daughters wrote a book actually. Oh. And I read something that, you know, one of the daughters describes like my mom dropped me off on my dad's 
doorstep. I was there for hours. I didn't know if he was even coming home that night. That's so sad. And she thought just because, well, let's see how your dad likes this. So her regard really wasn't Mm -hmm. on her children at all. You know, we can't say as much, obviously, about Dan and Linda. They're deceased. We haven't heard from them. Betty's always been much more vocal. Mm -hmm. It's certainly easier to say what might have been wrong with her. She was also diagnosed by another uh, expert as having um, severe depression, Mm -hmm. which also may have been true. You know, I think Betty was in. Uh, I think Betty was unstable before, mm-hmm. but we talk about this sometimes in our classes uh, where people face like a great strain mm-hmm. or a great loss. So I think for Betty that she suffered this great loss, and it wasn't just it was losing her husband, but she also didn't want to lose the life mm-hmm. they had worked so hard. And she, in fairness to her, she she's the one who made the sacrifice mm-hmm. to get them there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the actual strain of losing her husband and that lifestyle threw her into a whirlwind of Mm -hmm. violence and instability. I think it was, you know, I think she did suffer, of course. Was it a mental illness? I'm not sure. Or was it just, you know, also she suffered a loss and she had personality disorders, Mm -hmm. which I think you probably could see ahead of time. They weren't trying to claim any sort of insanity or... No, they went with battered woman's offense. Yeah, they they just stuck with that. Both both trials. Okay, Both trials, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I I think that, you know, was she a battered woman, though? Do I think she was a battered woman? No. I think that also she had such a great opportunity, right? She is a woman who was smart, young, educated. She had, uh, she could work. She was getting, you know, alimony to support her, living a good life. She had every opportunity to go on with her life. She has a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. She actually did move on with her life, but Mm -hmm. she couldn't let it go. She couldn't let go of anger and she couldn't, you know, she couldn't escape it. And it almost sounds like she's okay with where she is because she feels like this is what had to be done. And that's the impression I'm getting from... It's what, the impression that I got. No, I don't think she's okay with where she is. I don't mm-hmm. think she, you know, is okay with being in prison. Yeah, but, um, but I don't think she's remorseful. Yeah. I think she, no matter what, I'm in prison. I'm a victim, though, who got yeah. placed here. You know, this mm-hmm. punishment is not fitting, but still not willing to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to say her punishment is probably, for me, her punishment is fitting. I think the criminal justice system got it right. Yep. I think Betty Broderick could have gotten herself out of prison in 19 to 20 years after serving that time mm-hmm. by being showing remorse. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that also might have been fair if she truly was remorseful, mm-hmm. um, if she were to have a second chance. Yep. The parole board also said they found that she was not only that she didn't show remorse, but they also found that she would still be a danger to the community. That I don't agree with. But not only about her age, it sounds like an isolated incident. It's not someone that's just randomly going around hurting people. I I guess you could argue that, well, what if her next boyfriend, something happened? She might be the kind of person where if something happens that she's not happy with in life, that's going to be her response. So I guess if that's how they were looking at it. You know, they called her angry Betty. Could she be triggered? So yeah. I'm gonna, uh, I'm going to agree with you and disagree with the parole board. Mm-hmm. Betty was 69 years old at the time. She's older. I think it was an incident related to the loss of her husband, yeah. the, in, you know, the insult to injury, mm-hmm. the anger related to that. I highly doubt that she would have gone on to, you know, become some sort of yeah. spree killer. Um, so I think the parole board was probably right that she's not remorseful probably wrong that she would go on to pose a future danger yeah but so betty will remain in the california institute for women until such time where she gets a another chance at parole and we'll see if she shows enough remorse to get out that time all right and that's it for today thanks everyone for listening thank you 
Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. James Varga is our producer and editor. Our music is by Dessert Media. <laughs>